Hi everyone, this is Wendy of Manager Tools and I just wanted to give you a quick introduction to this time's licensee Q&A. As usual, Mark hasn't read the entirety of the question, so to see the details you'll need to go to the website. And the quickest way to do to find the questions is to go to my account and then go to my products and you'll see the licensee call archive there. We had some great questions as usual and Mark gave some awesome answers and we hope you enjoy it as much as we do. Please send us feedback, we'd love to hear from you. And now, on with the show. Question number one is, how do I make my leading software developer share his knowledge with new developers? And in this particular case, the person who's asking the question is managing this person, who's a content expert, and the content expert direct, who is being a bit problematic, is also an owner of the firm. So, to be clear, our guidance is about managing this person. The fact that he's an investor, owner, is, we agree, a complication. On the other hand, most people don't realize that the only way to deal with an employee slash investor is to never consider the investor portion in day-to-day -day work roles. If I work for Wendy and I'm both an employee and a director of hers and an investor, I know that professional maturity would dictate that I don't ask for special treatment in my role as a direct and I don't throw around the fact that I'm an investor or an owner. Ownership is not involved generally in day-to-day -day managerial activities. So how do we manage a high C investor who also does work day-to-day -day as an employee, if you will? Politically, you got to make sure you've spoken to your boss before you begin this course of action. Walk your boss through what you intend to do and ensure you have his or her support before you start. If you don't have a boss, consider what consequences, to put differently at this level, punishment, you can deliver to this person as an employee, which he can't trump as an investor. And I recognize that having said that, there's some of you who are listening and saying, well, actually, this guy's got 40% of the company, and if he decides to throw his weight around, the board could fire me. Yes, and, and unfortunately, I don't know enough in this situation to protect you from that. If you have a direct of yours who's a 40% owner, and you believe he's the kind of person who would throw his weight around in order to get you fired when you do effective manager stuff in a respectful way, and you don't treat him like a child, but you treat him like an adult, then I would encourage you to ask for a rearrangement of roles or find somewhere else to work um, because no one will be effective with a petulant, immature, 40% owner as an employee. And if that person had ever agreed to two roles, they should have recognized how the roles were different. And if they don't, that's fine, but you need to get out of there. Okay. And frankly, in well-managed companies with situations like these, it's not unheard of to fire an investor who fails to do his or her job. They get to stay being an investor or an owner, but not if they don't do their job. Do they get to keep your job? Okay, two parts to the answer. First, change your way of asking him to do work. Institute a project that may take three to six weeks where he has to describe the architecture as part of an IT risk mitigation strategy. In other words, create a project 
where he's going to describe the architecture for risk mitigation. At the end, he has to come up with a presentation so that everyone understands the architecture that, quote, right now, only he knows. You set weekly deliverables, assuming you can metric it out so that he reaches the outcome you want. If it were me, I'd probably give him deliverables every couple of days. Make this his primary responsibility because failing to perform in your primary responsibility has consequences, most people understand. Think about what the consequences could be in three to six months and discuss those with your boss now. Second, assign him writing specs and have another developer in the room. Start assigning specs and give reasonable deadlines. And then overload him with specs so that he doesn't have time to both do that and also follow through and do the work themselves. And then when he doesn't do what you want him to do, give him negative feedback. Short answer. Second question, what are your thoughts about role changes that require a demotion and title and pay? Do we recommend them, don't we, and so on? Our thoughts about role changes and demotions are that we highly recommend them. We agree that it's okay to take a demotion, but it's more complicated than we wish it would be. Most people won't agree with our stance. If you're asking us, should you accept the demotion, then sure you should, unless you believe that the culture won't accept it. In other words, if you accept the demotion, but then everybody will say you're damaged goods and nobody will ever do anything you want them to do in any way, shape, or form, then the culture won't support it. You'd have to have concern about the likelihood of your being able to achieve results in the future. If your boss is suggesting a demotion to you, then ask him if the story can be that you were the one who asked to take a step back because to some degree the communication of these things matters. If you have a direct whose role may not be right for him, ask them to take a step back. It's up to the person to make that choice. If you demote them and your belief is retention is unlikely and it would depend on the industry you're in, then maybe the demotion is just sort of a two-part process and all you're doing is delaying the inevitable. In industries with low fluidity that, that are narrow or are harder to recruit into, retention possibility is probably only 30%. If it's a really fluid, active market, then retention is probably 0%. If you do ask somebody to step back, fight like hell to keep them from having their pay reduced. It's much harder for people to deal with that. Freeze their pay. Tell them you're not going to get a raise for a while because you're going to be paid at a level higher than what you're used to. Or you're going to be paid at a level higher than what you're earning. Um, but spend some political capital, work with HR or whoever you need to, your boss as well, to make that happen. Question three, what tips does manager tools have for those people becoming directors? Folks, this question is really too big for this format. The most obvious and important distinction between managing individual contributors and managing managers is that you're not just managing them and their output, but you're managing now the results of them and their team, who are much harder to see, obviously. We recommend you create metrics and reporting between you and your directs, those managers who report to you, 
that will give you insight into what's happening a level down. There wouldn't be anything wrong with once a month turning over the one-on-one to much more be about what their directs are doing rather than just talking about what they're working on. The natural tendency of an awful lot of frontline managers is with their boss to talk about the work that they're doing, in other words, that the manager is doing. And they forget that to the organization, they represent their entire team. And so you may have to work harder to get them to talk to you about their directs as well as about themselves. And there's also a small minority of frontline managers who think it should always be about their directs. These are the high I's and the high S's. And in that sense, you'll probably, you may have to, to lead them in the other direction. But generally, the majority of frontline managers are trying to impress their director bosses and spend too much time talking about all the work they did and the problems they're having, and they forget to provide a spotlight down to their directs. And then after you've been in a role for about six months, you have to start delegating. Becoming a director is the beginning of the transition toward the possibility of becoming an executive. And the big stumbling block for junior executives is learning how to delegate and trust your people. And we'll have more to say about the difference in managing individual contributors and managers at some point in the future. No promises when. Question four, how do I position a former direct to get a new position in another department in my company? This manager recruited a person about six months ago. You had worked together previously. He was really, really good. And his current position is not ideal for him. I want him to meet my contacts, other managers, and other business units that could use somebody like him. So, congratulations. This is a really smart move. The phrase to use with your peers is, this is a guy I want you to know. I think he could be helpful to you. Now, that's sort of level one communication. If you said that to me, I would raise my eyebrows and go, I see. That's your entree into a discussion with me about maybe there's a role for Bob in Mark's organization. That said, maybe only 40% of managers know that. And so the other 60% may need to be spoon-fed a little bit more. So you would email me in advance if I wasn't that smart and say, hey, Mark, I'm going to bring Bob over to meet you. I think there are other roles in the organization, including some in your organization, not all of which I know, uh, that might be great for him, better than where he is now. This guy's good. I'm vouching for him. I want the three of us to get together for a beer or coffee or lunch or just I want him to be in the room when we're the two of us are in a meeting and I can schlep him over and meet you. And then when he introduces him to me, he says, hey, Mark, this is a guy I want you to know. I think Bob could be helpful to you. And I know these things are probably overly detailed for some of you, but one of the things people don't consider is physicality when they do these sort of things. If you're in a meeting room and I was introducing Bob to Wendy, who was a peer manager of mine, I would sit at the head of the table or next to one of the two of them, and I would have Bob and Wendy sitting directly across from one another. So the clear intent of the meeting is for Bob to talk to Wendy, not for Bob to talk to Mark and have Wendy listen in, not for Mark and Wendy to talk about Bob, but for Bob and Wendy to talk. 
and then tell Joe, or Bob in this case, to work hard to stay in touch. You've opened up your network to him. I've introduced him to Wendy. It's not my job to get him a job with Wendy. It's my job to introduce him to Wendy, make sure Wendy knows that Bob's in play, and then Bob needs to bust his tail. And if Bob worked for me every week, I'd be asking him, okay, in the last month, I've introduced you to six people. With whom have you spoken or emailed or texted in the last week? And 80% of the time, they'll say, nobody. So you're going to have to follow up. Question five, how do I get directs and non-reports to commit to an action, give a date, and meet the date? And this particular questioner is about to become a manager of a team that he or she used to be an individual contributor on. It's going to have three engineer direct reports, another engineer who's not a direct reports but works on many projects, and then have to deal with program managers and other engineers to get projects complete. We know people, but uh, I know I want to be able to ask for a task to be completed, the direct or non-direct to give me a date, they can meet the task, and then they meet it. I just had a meeting last Thursday. We sent out action items that were completed by Monday. I was out of the office on Friday, came to the meeting on Monday, and none of the actions have been completed by my direct or non-direct. How do I get out of this broken loop? Well, gee, if I could magically snap my fingers, answer that question, have everybody follow our guidance, um, I'd be a billionaire and I'd be playing golf right now and no one would ever hear from me again. So projects are slipping, obviously. There's so many places to attack this from. The first thing is, gee, you ought to be working on your relationships. You didn't say anything about one-on-ones or feedback or anything, but develop relationships with your folks because relationships are what you trade on when you ask people to do things rather than tell people to do things. And build better relationships so that you can ask for things and expect good responses. Next, you need to start giving them feedback when they don't do it. And one of the easiest ways to help that happen is to start creating smaller tasks. I'd be willing to bet if I saw the task that you created, that might be two, three, four, five hours long, Um, which between Thursday and Monday might have been a significant amount of time because people were already busy before you assigned them something on Thursday. So start scoping tasks down to smaller and smaller levels and include in the assignment of the task the reporting of the task being done. And if something has to be done for a meeting on Monday, don't assign it to be reported as being done at the meeting on Monday. Give some advance notice. In other words, assign it to be done by Friday afternoon, or if the meeting's at one Monday at 2, have it be done by Monday at 10. And yes, you can assign times and dates to deadlines for tasks. And before somebody writes me and says, that was a really thin response, yes, I just gave you the icing on top of the cake because the answer to this question would take five years. Number six. How do I keep an extremely good performer in the face of higher paying options? Great question. You're grooming somebody to be a replacement. It's a while away. Customers keep asking to hire this person away. There's no way I can pay him as much as customers. He's staying out of loyalty right now, even in the face of much higher offers. It says here, I've been giving him personal help, training from third parties. He's very, very young for a director position but he is definitely director material. Look, the answer is you don't fight the pay thing. You do what you're doing now. 
And there's nothing wrong with him leaving. If somebody offers him, if he's making 70 for you and somebody offers him 120, if he went home and told his wife, I turned down 120, his wife would probably kill him because that's real money. $50,000 a year is, what is that? It's 4000 bucks a month. Um, that materially changes their personal lives and starts securing their retirement future. So you can't win this battle if the scale is anywhere from $1 more to a million dollars more. The higher the differential in pay, the more you can rest assured that you're going to lose them. And it's a bit like saying, well, I want to go into the ring against uh, Floyd Mayweather. I may be bigger than him, but he's going to beat me up. And there's nothing you can do about that. So you go back to the fundamental manager tools principles. What kind of relationship do you have? And you're doing all the right things. And you may very well lose him. I would also be not afraid to ask him to talk to him openly. Build a relationship where he will tell you what everyone else is telling him. And have regular conversations with him. It probably sounds a little bit ninja-like. But I would also say, hey, look, if you need to leave for the right opportunity... I appreciate that you've stayed this long, and I hope you're making the right choice for you and your family. And when the offer is right and you need to go, I'm not going to hold that against you. You're a person I want to stay in touch with. You're the kind of person I want to work with. And if you finally decide you simply have to go because the disparity in pay is too big, then I'll be the first person to congratulate you. Because if you're going to lose, you might as well lose gracefully because smile at people on your way up because you'll see them on the way back down. So do everything you can. You're doing a lot of good things. And be gracious when you lose, if you do. And I hope you don't. Question seven. How do I compete with my peers to get more challenging work and bigger responsibilities? This worries me, this question. It says, I'm an individual contributor. I'm an account manager in a brokerage company. My boss and her boss have given me positive feedback over the last year, supporting me. Um, for a promotion. My new role will still be an interview contributor, but at a higher rank. I want more responsibilities in my current and new role. I want, want better projects. I've expressed this to my boss. She accepted I could do more, but didn't seem to come up with anything. I feel my growth is limited if I don't work on things that can stretch and push me. I volunteered. Um, my peers are also trying to get more challenging projects. I feel I don't want to compete. Uh, however, I feel if I don't compete, I'm going to be still doing the same work, even at a higher role. Well, now we come to the fundamental conundrum of organizations are made up of individuals, but organizations' goals and objectives are often misaligned with individual goals and objectives. If everybody got to the level that they thought they were capable of, organizations would break. On the other hand, if organizations paid what they would really like to pay, nobody would come to work. There's an inevitable tension between you and what you want, generally, and what the organization can do, because the organization can't be optimal for itself while being perfectly optimal with every individual employee relationship. You're doing the right things. You're volunteering. You're pushing. And I think, the way I read your note, you're pushing in a professional way. And there's probably not a lot more you can do in, in terms of the politicking and goals. I, I would say this, 
the first rule, even before asking for more, is to deliver outside outsize results. If you want to become a manager, the first thing is do your individual contributor job well. Don't take your eye off the ball of what you're measured on each month, each week. If you're so busy volunteering and getting other stuff done that you don't actually stick to the knitting and get your core job done, heaven forbid some vice president see a ranking of performance and see you in the middle of the pack because you're busy trying to steal second and you've lost track of where first base is. First base right now is getting your job done. So you've got to take care of your existing job. The other thing I think you got to do is develop your internal network because maybe the role you're in and the jump to the next two roles is such that the gap is so big that there are other opportunities in the organization where you could make a bigger move with a smaller gap between where you are and where they're going to be. I think too many people focus too narrowly, too narrowly and too vertically elevator shaft like in their careers. And while I think in your case, knowing the brokerage business, it's likely that you want to do a vertical step up. Don't eliminate the idea that there are other opportunities and those other opportunities only become available to you when your network lets you know more about them or when a person says, wow, you're really good. You should come to work for me. May not be in your normal career path, but HR is unlikely to stand in the way. Question number eight, how do you handle a conversation when your managers are telling you that you could not be promoted this year due to budgetary constraints, but you know they're not telling the truth because you've already heard from someone else, a reliable person who was in the meeting, that your name was not discussed in the promotion discussion meeting. Tough situation. A little bit more background. I'm a manager at a fairly large data and analytics firm. I've been rated highly consistently throughout my career. Got a breakthrough performance rating last annual review, the highest rating. Some folks who were at the same level as me were promoted. And I'm not quite sure how to react to my bosses telling me that you should be at the next level. Your performance is great. You'll be there next year. But the reasons given aren't accurate, especially when that you know they didn't take your name in the steel cage death match. These are hard. Even though you say the person who told you is reliable, I generally find that when we get into discussions about the availability and apportioning of limited resources like promotion opportunities and pay and bonuses and incentive pay and uh, raises and so on, I find that generally people's discussions of these things vary wildly uh, and frequently from the truth. If, in fact, you believe your boss has lied to you, that's a pretty serious thing. Now, she may have been told, you can't tell him why, and so he or she made up something, which can be forgiven. Sounds here like you believe that they've doubled down and said it again, and I don't know what to tell you. I wouldn't want to work for somebody who I didn't trust. I'd try to be forgiving. I don't recommend you confront your boss and say, Joe told me my name wasn't even in the discussion. I just don't recommend that because the moment you say that, if you believe you've caught your boss out and your boss then says, your name was discussed, 
he must just not have been listening. Now we're playing who shot John. And now both persons, A and B, the person who said the original thing and then the person who was forced to refute it, are both pushed further away from you. You don't trust either one of them. And you have no way to judge which one is right and which one is wrong. And I use the word judge carefully because I think far too often people believe that management ought to be free of judgment. And judging people sounds terrible, but that's different. In the same way that the word discriminating has become bad because it's used only to apply to ethnic bias, being a discriminating person is in fact a compliment that someone can make, can tell the difference between two things that are very closely related. That's the original definition of discriminating. In the same way that judgment sort of has a bad tone to it today. But in fact, you're going to have to make judgment calls about who you believe and about what's happening. My suggestion is to let this go. To believe that there was a miscommunication, a misunderstanding, to continue to perform at a high level. And my recommendation for how to handle a conversation when you're not exactly certain, unless you're prepared to call their bluff and have them essentially bluff you back in a different way and be left with not knowing who was right and who was wrong, I recommend you simply swallow hard, recognize that when it comes to working with people, there's all kinds of mistakes, there's all kinds of miscommunications, nothing's going to happen perfectly. If you believe these people are generally good people, they're probably not holding it against you, uh, or, or they're probably not going to work against you, and I would give it another year. And you may be right or you may be wrong. The last thing I'd recommend is to turn it into a, a referendum on truthfulness and say, well, I can't work here. Because worst case, I hate to say this, and I'm not saying this is absolutely true, but people will lie to you for the rest of your career. If you want a job where nobody lies to you, work with no customers, no vendors, no employees, no service personnel, because unfortunately, ethics aren't evenly spread across the universe. Sad, but true. And this is not fantasy tools, it's manager tools. Question number nine. My company is reorganizing to add matrix management where we didn't have it before. Do you recommend getting outside assistance, we're considering a particular company, to help guide employees through the change? Well, Wendy and I have a phrase that we like to kid about. It's true, and we mention it periodically, but we think it's funny. We don't recommend how to do things if we would not recommend doing the thing to begin with. So I'm not a big fan of matrix management. I would never spend time trying to figure out what firms do that help with the transition of matrix management. I personally would never do it. But if I was forced to by my boss, if the CEO said, Mark, you will do matrix management, I probably wouldn't hire a consulting firm unless my best friend ran it because I would simply say, okay, what do we know? What do we have to do? What's the outcome? Let's sit down. Let's make this change effort an effective one. I would recommend you recommend John Cotter's book about leading change and listen to our podcast about podcasts about change and about communicating and doing things quickly and so on. Black and white, would I recommend getting a consulting firm to help? No. And 
I say that even if somebody said, Mark, do we need a consulting firm to come help us change our management, how we manage people? I would say no. And when you laughed and said, well, gee, isn't that what you do? I'd say, yeah, you don't need us. That's why there are podcasts. Have your people listen. Have them sit down. Talk about what's going to do. Send us a couple of emails. Do it yourself. And be happy with working through the problem, being in the muck and getting your hands dirty rather than outsourcing the process to somebody else. Question 10, do you think hiring a headhunter or headhunting firm to help find an executive or a C-suite job, job is worthwhile? This person's been extremely successful in a small company. It's been hard to develop a network in companies I would like to seek future employment opportunities with. I'm unsure how to get exposure. I actually thought when I re- originally read the question is, should big companies or should my company hire a headhunter? And it's funny that this one comes right after the last one because generally, I just said we don't recommend uh, consulting firms. There are some cases where we would, um, but I don't consider hiring a headhunter to be a consulting firm to help with the process change. You're helping them for their, you're hiring them for their specific knowledge of the talent market. Um, now it's disappointing, of course, that the talent market isn't well known among the executives in a firm that is having to go outside. The very best firms don't have to do that because they have people standing in line. But you're actually asking a different question, which is, should I hire a headhunter? Well, my answer is unequivocally yes, but with the understanding that you you don't hire anybody. You don't get to hire a headhunter. Headhunters work for the company. What I can say is we have two or three or four podcasts on how to work with executive recruiters. Uh, It tells you exactly what to do to vet them what you probably should have already been done in terms of building relationships with them. And we highly recommend John, our friend, dear friend, John Luck's book, Rites of Passage at $100,000 plus. It is the Bible of learning about executive transitions, working with search firms. And I'm blanking right now on, oh, I know, contingent, Wendy's sitting here. I was about to turn to Wendy and say, what are the two types of search firms? contingency and retained search firms. And you need to know the difference between those two things. But yes, I recommend you have a relationship with headhunters. You should know that you probably shouldn't call them headhunters. On the other hand, that name, as perhaps unseemly as it is, is a good reminder to you that they work for the client and not for you and take what they say with a grain of salt. Good luck. First of all, I'm glad you avoided an exit interview. Um, Most people don't understand that exit interviews are designed to help the company, often at the expense of the departing employee. And while it's not intended, I'm not suggesting a nefarious purpose, it's too bad that uh, too many people answer questions honestly. And then you find out later that obviously the people who are still there are loyal to the company and they mention your name and that affects your ability to move forward and in your career. And that can be difficult. You've asked, what are your legal and ethical obligations? You have almost no legal obligations, uh, either while you're at the company or after. The company asking you to do something is not a legal mandate or even a legal suggestion. A subpoena would be something along the legal lines, but you're not legally responsible to do anything uh, unless, of course, you're subpoenaed after the fact. Uh, If the company's asking you to do something, 
Please don't take this the wrong way, but generally, you should assume an adversarial relationship simply because that information may be used in ways that are not helpful to you. I'm not suggesting the company is your adversary. I'm suggesting the information that you provide may be shared with someone else, because if there aren't legal protections, you're not guaranteed that what you're, shared, what you're sharing is going to be in confidence. And even if it is technically shared in confidence, that doesn't mean that people won't break their oath to you. It happens all the time. If that information is shared, it may be shared without the context of your departure and the issues you've had with your boss, and that may put you at risk. And as a general rule, particularly after you've left an organization, your integrity oughtn't to be used against you. Ethically is probably a different story. My recommendation is offer to help if you're contacted. Don't reach out. Don't check on status. It is the company's uh, responsibility to take care of the issues that your boss created for them. Your departure includes partially these issues. Your departure is your answer. I don't feel obligated to try to correct it. And unfortunately, while we would all like to think that everybody's equal and you as a societal member should help your boss, should help your boss get ahead, that role power and HR's power over the other people that might have influence over your career is not trivial. It's enough to make a difference. If you are asked, what I recommend you do is limit the time. In other words, say, I'm prepared to give an hour and then be very careful, very circumspect, uh, and avoid saying anything, and ask for a transcript. Uh, unfortunately, these are the times we live in today, um, and while you may have the best of intentions, that doesn't mean the recipient will also have the best of intentions. In these situations, you have to have a mind toward protecting yourself. I wish you well. You should do your best and recognize your limitations. Yes, when your boss is checked out and there's a branch that he or she is responsible for, it's really hard as a number two or a number three or number four to keep the branch effective. It is. It's hard. It's supposed to be hard because by definition, the manager, the branch manager has the authority to make things effective and you don't. That's the nature of power distribution in organizations. It's not perfect but it's better than any other system we know of in the world today, the hierarchy that large organizations essentially adopt worldwide. I encourage you to work harder than you normally would while keeping an eye on the necessary work-family balance that will keep you from burning yourself out. Remember, you have almost no leverage with your boss, almost none. You're not gonna be able to do his or her work. Do as much as you can Communicate as positively as you can, because surely if you know it, everybody else knows that the boss is checked out. And learn to be at peace with what you can do and what you can't do. I would suggest the serenity prayer would be very helpful. There's probably not more you can do than over-communicate. Work on your team as best you can. Help your peers as much as possible. Hopefully get an opportunity to take over your boss's job when the organization asks him to check out officially or where he or she chooses to check out officially. But we have to learn to accept the limitations of the role we're in in a hierarchy. And there's not much more you can do because you're not going to manage your boss. You don't say much at all. Uh, these situations are hard. A beloved team member doesn't perform well and you are obligated because of performance issues to fire them. If 
you have done the hard work of trying to coach them, giving them plenty of feedback, work with them on one, in one-on-ones to develop a relationship and so on, then you've done the necessary work. You're responsible, as is he or she, for the firing because you're responsible for keeping, for retaining all of your people. Now the question becomes, what do you do about it? The best thing to do is to be brief and respectful. The same thing you would want from your boss if, heaven forbid, your performance was not up to snuff. You'd have to say, unfortunately, Bob, let's call him Bob, Bob will no longer be here. Um, We've agreed that he's no longer going to work for the firm. Uh, A very difficult decision. I'm not going to go into the details out of respect for Bob, and I assume he'll be the same in return. That said, we all liked him, and it's a reminder that performance comes first, and at the same time, I encourage you to reach out to him, help him in any way you can, and recognize that we all have different workloads now because Bob's not here, and I'm going to be asking some of you to step up or do things differently because of that. And um, there's nothing wrong with feeling a sense of loss about a a well-regarded team member. I respect that. If you have questions, you're welcome to come to talk to me independently. I would rather you didn't gossip, but I would be the first manager in the world who could magically prevent gossip. I remember, be careful about too much discussion among yourselves because in those conversations, you'll be talking about another person who isn't here, either to defend themselves or whom you can hug. And we want to be careful about how we talk about people who aren't part of the team. You leave those two years blank on your resume. You don't try to make up something up. You don't make up a title. You don't call yourself domestic servant or anything like that. If you attended college classes, put those down in the gap and expect to be asked about it. There's nothing wrong with a gap on your resume, all things being equal, which of course they never are. Great companies hire people with gaps on their resume all the time. If, in fact, you have enough related experience and you go in for an interview, the resume has already done its job the moment you're in an interview, and now the standard is how well are you going to answer that question. You need to practice your answer to, please tell me about the two-year gap while you attended these two courses. And probably you'd start with, I stepped out of the workplace, I regret it, stupid decision on my part, and now I have a burning desire to be back in. And oh, by the way, if you give that answer, be prepared to say, well, why did you leave? What was the rationale? What caused it to be? And they're looking for character issues or behavioral issues that they believe will come back and haunt them. But on the resume, you simply leave it blank. Will it potentially cause you to lose an interview? Sure. But the other way to address it is to say, how can I fudge it? And now you're lying in order to get an interview. And sooner or later, they're going to find that out. A resume that has been doctored might be able to get you an interview, but interviewers are good enough to see through that, and then you'll never get hired. So it'll be a pyrrhic victory to change your resume in order to get an interview, because you'll never get hired. Admit it in the resume by leaving it blank, and then practice your answer so that they can, show, they can see that you're an honest person and you did what many, many people do who can still go on to successful careers after. by the Effective Relationship Series podcast, which basically says, I'm a high D and I have a high C direct who works for me. Since that podcast show notes are, I think, 21 pages long, it'll be a little hard for me to tell you in a minute or two how a high D can communicate with a high C. I will tell you that 
uh, you will have to be a little bit more understanding about deadlines. High C's want to spend months and months and months planning, and you want to get right to work. Um, there is a plus to being a high D, communicating with a high C, and that you tend to be logical, linear, factual, and rational, and say with they. On the other hand, they want details, and you probably don't, uh, and you're going to have to get used to that. And the other side of the coin is you can ask them to start communicating differently with you. And if a direct who's a high C doesn't start communicating differently with you, that can be a point for feedback. And I go back to my original answer. Get the podcast. I'm a high D boss and my direct is a high C. 20 pages of all the details about how to communicate with them in meetings, how to give them deadlines, how to assign them projects, how to give them feedback, and what they expect from you in detail in the Manager Tools style. Actionable. Don't do it. Uh, are there exceptions? Sure. Did you give me the specifics of your situation? No. Since I don't know the specifics, I'll give you my general guidance. Don't do it. If you spend your own money on one of your directs, uh, there will be discussion about why you spent money on one of your directs. Since Christmas gifts tend to be exchanged between family and friends, and this person clearly is not related to you, you've made a statement that therefore they're your friend. Also, don't assume that if you give a Christmas gift to one of them and you tell them, please keep it quiet, first of all, there's a tone of that that's not good. But second of all, the only person you can share secrets with is somebody who's dead. Yeah, the moment you share it with somebody else, they're going to share it with one other person with whom they're close, and then pretty soon, everybody knows. My answer is, don't do it. Here's how I would do it if a direct came to me and said, well, this assignment you're giving me doesn't motivate me. If I were going to give them negative feedback, I probably wouldn't do it right in that moment. I might give it the next day or in our one-on-one, -on -one, and I would say this. Hey, can I give you some feedback? When you tell me that an assignment that I assigned, like yesterday, you said, that doesn't motivate me, my response is, uh, my job is not to motivate you. My job is to assign you work and to get the most out of you I possibly can. Can you do that better next time? Can you do that differently next time? Can you try to avoid saying that in the future? What I want, of course, is for them to say yes. They probably won't. And if they don't the first time, just back away. You don't need a confrontation. Listen to our Shot Across the Bow podcast. We don't fight with our directs. If you feel like the direct says, starts to push back, but there's a chance they'll say no, say, okay, I'm happy to talk about your pushback for a second, but first, will you, are you willing to try? Get them to say yes, because that's the point of negative feedback, to get them to commit to new behavior in the future, because the point of all feedback is to affect the right future behavior, whether it's positive or negative. If they say yes, then if you like, if you have time, you can say, okay, uh, let's talk about your concerns. First of all, let me share something with you. It's not my job to motivate you. I don't know who told you that. Um, I don't know where you learned it. There is a modern zeitgeist around the idea that the boss's job is to motivate you. It's all wrong. Read psychology, read behavioral psychology, read organizational psychology, organizational behavior. They all say the same thing. All motivation is internal. Okay? There is ex extrinsic motivators like better pay, and there are intrinsic motivators. Okay? Just because you're somebody's boss doesn't mean your job is to motivate them through extrinsic factors. It's their job to motivate themselves. The fact that they don't like a particular project doesn't mean that they don't they get to choose not to do it. The job, their job description doesn't say, 
all of these things only if you like it. And so therefore, what I would say to them is this. I would say, gosh, I, I got to tell you something. There are three or four parts of my job that don't motivate me. And I do it because it's part of my job. And being a professional, doing all parts of my job, is part of being a professional, is more important to me than doing an analysis of each one of the parts of my job and deciding which ones motivate me more and which ones motivate me less. And if I were in a snarky mood, or if I felt like uh, the direct had a, a, an ability to appreciate the humor, I would say, I know something that motivates you less, and that's not having the job. Think about it this way. There are 30 things you could do in your job. Don't think about it as not motivating you. Think about it as some things motivate you more and some things motivate you less. And I'll tell you something as a gray beard, as somebody who's been around the block a little bit. If you want to look for a job that only has portions of the job that motivate you, good luck. There isn't one, unless you want to start your own firm, and then you'll probably end up doing some things you don't motivate you, simply to serve the larger interest of what it is you started the company for. Thank you.